Acts chapter 17. We're studying through the book of world missions, the book of world evangelism. And because this is the book of world evangelism, we obviously will have a great many texts that speak to us about evangelism. Now on the topic of evangelism, I'm sure you heard the story of the two Christians who were going door to door and knocking on folks' door to tell them the Gospel of Jesus. Well, they were going door to door and they came to this one door and knocked on the door and the lady opens the door. Within just a few moments, she realizes who they are and why they're there. She was not interested in hearing what they had to say. So she slammed the door in their face, only the door didn't close. It still kind of swung back open after she slammed it. So then being frustrated and and wanting to take out all of her anger on the door, she then grabbed the door with both hands and flung it closed with all of her strength, only to see that the door swung open once again. Now she's really angry, and she grabs the door one more time, and she's going to now force this door closed with all of her strength because she thinks in her mind that one of these Christians has stuck their foot right there in the door, and she's determined she's going to break that foot. So she grabs the door, and she's about to fling it when one of the Christians says, ma'am, before you do that, you might want to move your cat. Now, evangelism is what most of us don't do. And the reason we don't do it is because we think that that's the reaction we're going to get. And oftentimes, that is precisely the reaction that we're going to get. It's the reaction that Paul and Silas and Timothy get, at least in Thessalonica. So, if you're with me in Acts chapter 17... Let's uh, just remind ourselves of where we are at this point. They've left Philippi. They've left behind a brand new church there in Philippi that consists of the jailer. It consists of the slave girl. It consists of Lydia and probably some others as well. So they've left behind that fledgling church. After being beaten and imprisoned improperly and unjustly, they've now left Philippi. And we pick up there in verse 1. We're going to look this morning at the first 15 verses of Acts chapter 7. And let's begin by reading those together. Verse 1, And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. When the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, 
but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So in this passage that we have before us today, Paul and Silas and Timothy are going to two more cities, Thessalonica and Berea. They will go there with the same message, spoken by the same messengers, but they will receive responses that are different. Beginning here in verse 1, we are told that they go through these other two cities, they pass through them, Amphipolis and Apollonia. Now we assume that what that means is they didn't stop there to preach the Gospel. We don't know, maybe they did. We know that Luke is not necessarily narrating every event to us. And why it is they didn't stop there, we don't know. We assume that God was directing Paul and Silas and Timothy to go to Thessalonica, which is where they go. Now Thessalonica, again, they're making their way westward into central Europe now. And Thessalonica is going to be much like Corinth. It's a large city. It was the capital of Macedonia. It was uh, very affluent in business. It had a very nice harbor. Um, a lot of business was done there. They were located on several important trade routes. The people of Thessalonica were Greek-speaking. They were particularly educated. And so this was a big city, a large city, a fluent city, much like Corinth would have been, or much like Rome would have been to a smaller degree. So they come here to Thessalonica. In verse 1, we see that Paul does his normal custom, which is go to the synagogue to begin preaching the Gospel at the synagogue. Paul will always seek out those who are searching for God, and that's where he begins. And so he assumes, rightly so, that he's going to find those who are seeking God gathered together at the synagogue. So he goes here to the synagogue. And then verse 2, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days... He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So three, um, I'm sorry, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So he's here in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, speaking with them about the Scriptures. We, we would assume that he was here for longer than just three weeks, in Thessalonica that is. Maybe he was only in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. But we assume he was in Thessalonica more than just three weeks. One reason we can know this is if we look over to Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. He says to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 16, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So he writes to the Philippians saying, When I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help more than one time. You sent me money. You sent me support more than once. Remember, Thessalonica, or Philippi is where he just left. So the church in Philippi has supported Paul at least twice in Thessalonica. And with the way communication was in those days, we would assume that this means he was in Thessalonica more than just three weeks, probably a number of weeks or perhaps a number of months he was here in Thessalonica ministering to them and, as it says, reasoning with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And so in this section here, what Luke is saying to us, he's giving us sort of a snapshot of what it is that Paul is doing here in Thessalonica, which is representative of what Paul was doing everywhere. Sort of a quick snapshot of the process that Paul is, is going through to share the Gospel, to evangelize, to bring the good news of salvation to those who have not heard and have not believed. And so what we're going to do this morning is just take a few moments to look at how Luke describes the activity of Paul here in Thessalonica, understanding that it was a model that Paul followed and understanding that it's the same model that we follow today. As Luke describes Paul's activity here, there are six words, six verbs 
that are key to seeing what Luke or what I'm sorry, what Paul is doing here in Thessalonica. And let's just walk through these six words and understand what it is that Paul or that Luke is communicating to us. The first word that we see is the word in verse two, at the end of verse two, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now we know that salvation comes from God alone. Salvation is a work of God. And God brings His salvation to lost men and women through His Scriptures. That's what God has told us. In the Scriptures, we're told places like Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes to us by hearing the Word of God. And so, God, God is responsible for salvation and He imparts His salvation through His Holy Spirit that works through the proclamation, the reading of His Word. But at the same time, we also know that that doesn't mean that all we do is just quote Scripture or give out Bibles. Here, here's a Bible, lost person. Read it and you'll be saved. Or let me just throw some Scripture verses at you and you'll be saved. We know that it doesn't work like that. We know that, in a, that along with the Scriptures themselves, we know that Part of that process is reasoning through those scriptures. Or in other words, in other words, making belief of the scriptures to be something reasonable, something logical, something rational. A lot of non-believers will have sort of a false idea of what we Christians believe. A lot of non-believers will, will view Christian faith as blind faith, as if we have no understanding or no comprehension of what it is that we believe in. But instead, we just believe whatever the Bible says, whether it makes sense or not, and most of the time it doesn't make sense. Right? That's what non-believers think about what, how we believe. But that is not a description of the Christian faith. God asks us to have faith in what we cannot see. But God never asks us to believe in the irrational. He never asks us to believe in the illogical. He never asks us to believe in Him regardless of what all the evidence shows us. Rather, belief in God is shown to be a rational, reasonable thing. Belief in a Creator is a completely rational belief. Belief in in the salvation that God has imparted to us through His work on the cross is a completely logical thing to believe in. And this is what Paul is engaging in. He's reasoning with them and showing them from the Scriptures, that belief specifically in the Messiah, the suffering Messiah who died, was buried, and rose again, that is a very rational thing. Because remember what the stumbling block for the Jews is? Paul is talking here to Jews. He's in the synagogue. And their stumbling block, he told us in Galatians, the stumbling block of the Jews is the cross. The idea that the Messiah would be a suffering Messiah and a dying Messiah. The Jews just couldn't get past that. It was a stumbling block for them. And so he's reasoning with them from the Scriptures that the Scriptures teach us that it is a completely rational thing to believe that God must make the sacrifice that He made in order for sin to be atoned for and the separation between us and God to be removed. Maybe Paul's taking them to the Isaiah scroll, Isaiah 53. Maybe he's taking them to Psalm 23. Maybe he's taking them to Genesis 3. Maybe he's taking them any number of places. But what he's doing is he's reasoning with them and showing them that belief in the suffering Messiah is a completely logical thing to believe in. He's reasoning with them from the Scriptures. And then the second word that he uses in verse 3 
explaining, explaining that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This word explaining is the same word that, that is often translated open. Luke 2, Luke uses the same words to say uh, every male that opens the womb is blessed of God. Or, uh, or in Luke uh, 24, for example, Luke 24, where the disciples are on the road to Emmaus, in verse 32, they said, Did not our hearts burn within us as He opened the Scriptures to us? So this word has, has within it the sense of opening our eyes, opening to our understanding, opening to our hearts so that we may understand. He's explaining the Scriptures to them. The Gospel has not been communicated until it has been explained. Until it has been explained why it is that we are separated from Creator God, and how it is that we may be reconciled unto Him. And so part of the communication of the Gospel is explaining. It doesn't mean that God saves people through our explaining, separate from the Scriptures. But what it means is, is that God supernaturally works within the believer who is not only quoting the Scriptures, but also explaining them as well to open our hearts, to open our minds so that we would have understanding and receive His salvation. I'm reminded of a... Gospel presentation, supposedly a gospel presentation I heard recently that um, basically went like this. This was an um, incredible missed opportunity. The gospel presentation basically went, went like this. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. And that was repeated a number of times. You need Jesus. Folks, that's not the gospel. You need Jesus is not the gospel. The gospel is why you need Jesus. What Jesus does for you. How it is that you come to receive this Jesus. What happens when you believe. What repentance is about. And what it means to be a new creation in Christ. That's the Gospel. And so that's what Paul is doing. He's explaining to them. He's explaining why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. He's explaining this to them. He's not assuming that they're going to read the Scriptures and all of a sudden just sort of come to that understanding on their own. He's doing the same thing that Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember Philip? When he goes to the Ethiopian eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the Isaiah scroll. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So he's explaining the Scriptures to them. The same thing that we are commanded to do. For example, this is in your sermon notes, uh, from places like 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Paul says, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of Truth. And rightly handling the Word of Truth means being able to explain the Word of Truth. Or places like, like 1 Peter 3, verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, a reason for the hope that is within you. So Paul is explaining the Gospel. The next word that we see here is proving. Verse 2 again, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So when we read that word approving, and I think that what comes to mind is sort of our modern understanding of that word proving. And, and maybe what comes to your mind is something like Perry Mason in a court of law resting his case. I've proven this person guilty. I've proven this person innocent. I've offered conclusive proof. And so the logical conclusion that one would come to after seeing this conclusive proof is that this person is guilty. Or maybe... You, uh, the, uh, a scientific experiment that proves, offers 
empirical evidence or you prove mathematically that something is true or something is false. I think that's what comes to mind when we think of that word prove. And that's not what Luke is communicating to us. If that's what Luke was communicating to us, if, if we had to prove the, the validity of the Gospel beyond, to, beyond a, a doubt, or if we had to conclusively demonstrate the factuality of the Gospel, then people wouldn't be saved. Luke is not saying to prove in the sense that we think of, of prove, but instead the word that Luke is using has um, a bit of a different meaning. There's no single English word that translates this completely, but the, the, the word has the sense of, of posing questions and answering those questions satisfactorily. It's, it's a dialogue in which Paul receives questions and answers those questions to the satisfaction of the people that are answering. In other words, he's proving, not with empirical evidence, but he's proving through his answers to their objections that belief in the suffering Messiah is a completely reasonable and rational thing to do. He's proving that through their objections, they're objecting maybe to, to this aspect of salvation, or they're objecting to the suffering aspect of the Messiah. And Paul is taking to the, them to the Scriptures, he's receiving their questions, and he's going to the Scriptures and saying, see, this is why the Scriptures show that this position is a good position to hold. And so that's the sense of proving that he's doing. Receiving their questions and giving them good answers. I think that that's oftentimes part of speaking to unbelievers, the part of speaking to unbelievers that makes us probably the most nervous, is receiving questions and then having good answers for those questions. I think that that makes us nervous, maybe for a few different reasons. Maybe because sometimes deep down we're worried that there aren't good answers for the questions that people may ask us. I know Christians, I think that at times, maybe they are somewhat worried about some, some of the tough questions that unbelievers may ask them, that, that perhaps there's not good answers for that. But let me encourage you. Let me encourage you that, that taking questions, dialoguing with, uh, with people of other faiths or people who are unbelievers, that is very healthy for the Christian to do. To work through those questions is a very healthy exercise for the Christian to do. Let me tell you what most of, most of us here, I think, come from an evangelical environment. You've been in a churched environment probably most of your life or all of your life. Let me tell you what oftentimes evangelicals who live their whole life or much of their life within a churched environment, let me tell you what often happens. You often lose sight of just how much you assume to be true. You often lose sight of just how much you assume to be true because you've been told your whole life that these things are true, and you believe in all of your heart. And so you lose sight of, of how much you assume to be true. And sometimes when you dialogue with a person of no faith, or a person of a completely different faith, you're really challenged to go to the Scriptures diligently and show some of the most basic things that you hold to be true are there. Sometimes that can be a real challenge, but let me encourage you that they, they are there. It just requires diligence on your part and faith in the God who has revealed Himself through His Word. I'm in the process now of dialoguing with a couple of different people of, of different faith altogether. I'm not talking about a different faith tradition. I'm talking about a different kind of faith altogether. And sometimes the questions that are posed can be a little bit frustrating because to us they seem so basic because we've assumed them true. 
And yet that forces us to go to the Scriptures and seek out good answers. Paul is doing that with the Jews as they are posing these questions. He's receiving their questions and giving them good answers. I think another reason, however, that sometimes we are uncomfortable with people questioning us in that way is it offends us. Have you known Christians to react that way? That they're just sort of offended when people question what they believe? Sometimes Christians can react that way as if we just sort of take it personally that you don't believe as I believe, and so we're sort of offended by that. Paul is gracious in his interaction with them. He's not offended by their questions. Instead, he diligently works through the Scriptures with them to show them from the Scriptures that the Messiah is who they should believe. Drop down with me into verse 11. This is skipping ahead to the Bereans when he's over in Berea. Verse 11. Speaking of the Bereans, Luke says, they received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So as Paul is communicating with the Bereans, they're doing so with open Bibles. And the Bereans are searching what Paul has said. Because, you know what, the Bereans, they're not like the Lyconians. Remember the Lyconians? They thought Paul was God. And whatever he said, that was good with them. The Bereans and the Thessalonians are not. They are Jews, and so they know that Paul is not God. And so they're not willing to just accept what he says to them until they validate it from the Scriptures. And so they're posing these questions, Paul's receiving the questions, and they're going to the Scriptures to validate what Paul is te- to, to validate his teaching from the Scriptures. You know the most encouraging thing that I can hear as I'm preaching? What's the most encouraging sound I can hear while I'm preaching? Pages turning. Because that tells me you're following me. That tells me you're validating what I'm saying from the Scriptures. That tells me that you're plugged in. Oh, how discouraging it is to preach to folks from the Word of God and there's not even an open Bible in their lap. To hear the Word of God preached and not even have an open Bible means one of three things. Either A, you're, you're receiving everything I say without validating it from the Scriptures, which is wrong. Or B, you're receiving nothing that I say and don't even uh, want to try to validate it from the Scriptures, which is wrong. Or C, you're not concerned enough about what I am saying to want to validate it or not. Good preachers of the Gospel are not offended when people question what they teach. Good preachers of the Gospel want what they preach and teach to be questioned, but here's the key, from the Scriptures. Good preachers of the Gospel want what they preach and teach to be questioned from the Scriptures. We don't want people to to uncritically accept what we say just because we say it. We want to stir up within you the same spirit of the Bereans that said, I'm going to test that by the Scriptures. And so good preachers, I know that you probably encountered maybe preachers who are offended when you question what they teach. And sometimes that's a temptation for us. And believe me, I've had people have questioned what I teach and what I teach and what I preach as well. But usually... They do it without a Bible. They do it without a Scripture. They do it to say, 
what you preached or what you taught doesn't agree with what I believe, and so therefore I'm questioning what you teach and what you preach. I'll admit to you that's frustrating. But I welcome being questioned with an open Bible. Come to me with a Bible and say, hey, what you taught? I don't have so sure. Let's take a look at this thing. Please, that, that, that excites me. To question what I'm teaching and what I'm preaching with the Scriptures, that means that I'm getting across. And so we welcome that sort of thing. Don't necessarily always welcome being questioned without the Scriptures, but come with an open Bible, and that means that we are connecting. This is what the Bereans are doing. This is what Paul is doing. That's part of that proving is receiving their questions and saying, okay, good question. Let's see what the Scriptures say and let's work through this together. So proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim. There's the next word, proclaim. So look at what Paul is proclaiming. He's proclaiming that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That is the core message of the Gospel. And this is the core message that Paul takes everywhere he goes. He'll say to the Corinthians later on, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he'll say, I, I proclaim to you what I received. That according to the Scriptures, Christ died, was, was buried, raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. That was the core of his message. He'll say in another place to the Corinthians, I decide nothing on you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the core of the Gospel. And that is what he proclaims to them. And again, folks, the Gospel has not been proclaimed until we proclaim the sinfulness of man, our need for reconciliation with God, how God has done that on the cross, and how faith in Jesus Christ accounts to us the righteousness of God from the cross. The Gospel has not been explained until those things have been pointed to. And again, we'll, I'll refer back to the Gospel presentation I heard some time ago. That was not a Gospel presentation. You need Jesus is not the Gospel. The Gospel is you are separated from God. Your sin has separated you from God. In order to be reconciled back to God, you must, God must reconcile you back to Himself. He's done this on the cross. His Son lived the perfect life, atoned for your sins on the cross. And by faith in Him, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He will give to you the full righteousness of God in exchange for your sin. That is the Gospel. And until we communicate that, we've not communicated all of, the, all of the Gospel. Now granted, we don't always have enough time to do all of that. Sometimes we have to plant seeds and water those seeds and plant another seed and water that seed. Paul understood that. And so sometimes we don't necessarily have time for all of that. But don't think that an unbeliever has heard the Gospel when they hear, you need Jesus. They need to hear more than that. So that he's proclaiming to them the Christ and in verse 4, and some of them were persuaded. Now, here's their response. Persuaded is the next word for us to look at. Some of them were persuaded. It means that they changed their mind, they changed their beliefs, and they accepted what Paul was teaching. So, let's remind ourselves that that is the goal of what we do. To persuade others to believe as we believe. Now, the crazy, politically correct world that we live in tells us that that is unethical that it is unethical for us to attempt to persuade others to change their religious beliefs to match ours. That is just the craziness of the overly politically correct world that we live in. But folks, let me just remind us that that is incompatible with Christianity. It is incompatible with Christianity 
to think that our role here on earth does not include the persuading of other people to believe as we believe. Now we know, don't we? Who does the persuading? Who does the persuading? Spirit does the persuading, right? 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that the Holy Spirit does the persuading. Which is why, if we were to flip over to 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Paul's writing his first letter, this church. 1 Thessalonians, if we turn there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul will say to the Thessalonians, because our Gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The reason it came with full conviction was because it came with power in the Holy Spirit. Right. So we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who does the persuading. But I think the point to make here is this. Sometimes we know that it's God that persuades, that it's God that, that converts, and we'll sort of use that as a cop-out. I've told them, my job's done, now it's up to God. Right. Sometimes we sort of take that approach. Our job is to tell, it's not our job to convert. While that's true, I think we'll sort of sometimes use that as a cop-out. Instead, what I see Paul doing here is he is working, he's proving, explaining, dialoguing, reasoning. He's doing all those things as if it were his position to convert them. In other words, he's pouring everything he's got into it, trusting all along that it's God who's going to save. But at the same time, he doesn't use that as a cop-out to say, hey, I've told them. They heard the Gospel. Seven years ago I told them the Gospel. Now it's up to God to do the rest. Instead, he doesn't give up. He works. He persuades, explains, proves. He does everything that he can. And then lastly, the last word that we'll look at, some of them were persuaded and joined. Now that word joined, it tells us of, uh, of uh, identifying with Paul and Silas and Timothy, of leaving the old way and joining the new way, identifying themselves now with this Messiah that suffered for them. They were baptized. That's what baptism was all about. Identifying with the suffering Savior. So they joined together with them. And then, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So a church is born in Thessalonica. Then verse 5, we see the same sort of pattern again. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, another, another rent-a-mob here. And they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So apparently Paul and his friends were staying with Jason. So they go and they attack Jason, the house of Jason, thinking that they're there, wanting to find them. And when they, verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Wow. These men who have turned the world upside down. Actually, truth be known, the world is already upside down, isn't it? The Gospel's turning the world right side up again. And so if you're, if you're upside down and somebody turns something right side up, to you it looks like they're turning it upside down. And so they're saying these, these men, they're turning the world upside down and they brought their teachings here. What an incredible compliment to turn the world upside Can you... Can you imagine if people were saying that about us? Those Christians, they are just turning the world upside down. Those Christians at so-and-so church, they are just turning this county upside down. And so, their complaint is, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. So apparently they were staying with Jason. 
And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. We know that the Greek language, you probably are aware of this, the Greek language has two words for another. One means another of the same kind. The other word means another of a different kind. Hetero, which is where we get our word heterosexual. Someone who is attracted to the other kind of gender. So Luke uses the word that means another of a different kind. He's proclaiming Jesus as another king of a different kind than Caesar. He's not another Caesar just coming to take Caesar's place. He's another king of a different kind. Then verse 9, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So apparently what happens is Jason puts up a bond and, or maybe some earnest money or something saying that here, here's, a bond, here's some bond money and when Paul leaves town, I can get my money back. That kind of thing. Maybe that's what they worked out. Then verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So we notice here that Paul and Silas leave by night. We made a big deal in Philippi out of the fact that Paul refused to leave by cover of darkness or to leave secretly from Philippi. Why does he leave Berea under cover of darkness like this? Well, I think there's some differences between Philippi and Berea. Uh, in Philippi, Paul had been unjustly beaten and unjustly put in prison. Here, he's not, he's not been uh, treated that way. But mainly... I think the big difference is he has been in Thessalonica. He's been in Thessalonica at least several weeks, maybe several months. He was in Philippi just a few days. And so the believers that he was leaving behind in Philippi were particularly fragile spiritually. Here, he's been here longer, and he's probably established more truth with, these, with, the, with the new church here, so he probably feels more comfortable leaving this way from uh, Thessalonica. So he leaves to go to Berea, and when he arrived, here goes his custom again, goes to the Jewish synagogue seeking those who are searching for God. Verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So here we see another church is born in Berea, and um, we see Luke is, is showing us a pattern here, showing us the pattern of the jealousy of the Jews, the non-believing Jews, were always consistently jealous of the work of the kingdom. And so they would follow Paul around everywhere. Persecuting Paul, persecuting the churches. They followed him everywhere. That will be consistent through the rest of the story of Acts. So we see that pattern as well. We also see the makeup of the churches. Luke seems to go out of his way to tell us that the churches were made up of all kinds of people of all different shapes and colors and backgrounds and, and socioeconomic classes and genders. The Gospel is truly a wall-breaking down force. It, it unites together people who are otherwise separated from one another. And so we see that, that theme, but we also see Luke really honing in on the theme of females. You know, that's one of Luke's big themes. Throughout his Gospel, Luke wants to make sure that we see the importance of women in the church. He's, 
Luke is the one that tells us of, of the woman with the flow of blood. He tells us of how it was the women who found the, the empty tomb. But here in the story of Acts, Luke really seems to be hammering that point home. Um, Lydia, the slave girl. Now two times in this passage, he has made it a point to tell us of Greek women of high standing were part of the church. So Luke wants to show us very clearly that women had a big role in the early church. So we see those patterns there. But one thing I want to see here just in the last couple minutes that we have is I want to look at verse 11 closely. Because Luke says something in verse 11 that's rather unusual. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Luke comments here about something within the character of the, Thess- of the Bereans that was different from the character of the Thessalonians. Now we know that, Paul is, or that Luke is not saying that the, uh, the Bereans were, were more deserving of salvation than the Thessalonians or anyone else. That would, of course, go against all of the rest of biblical teaching. So he's not saying that there's something within the Bereans that merited salvation. But what he is saying is that the Bereans received the word, the word differently than the Thessalonians. And he uses this word noble to describe it. So let's understand what noble means. The biblical use of noble, the biblical meaning of noble is not like a nobility, like a high-minded or, um, or uh, well-to-do. Instead, the biblical understanding of noble is someone lowly character, someone who is gentle, someone who is childlike, someone who makes no presumptions on their own nobility. That's the biblical understanding of noble. Someone who doesn't presume on their own worthiness. It's the same thing Jesus was teaching us in places like Matthew 18 where He says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So these Bereans were, were almost childlike in their grasp of their spiritual need. They made no presumptions on their, their own goodness but in this childlike sort of way, they knew that they were in desperate spiritual need. And knowing that they were in desperate spiritual need, they did what? They received the Word with eagerness. And they searched the Word diligently. Because being aware of their spiritual needs, they received this quickly. Now the Thessalonians also had to come to this same place, or else they wouldn't have been saved. They had to also come to this same sort of childlike understanding that, hey, I am in deep, deep spiritual need. But with the Thessalonians, it just took longer. Paul had to stay there weeks and and perhaps months in order for them to come to that place. The Bereans seemed to come to it right away. Same message, same messengers, different responses. We see the same thing, don't we? I remember um, maybe six or seven years ago, I spent a couple of weeks in... uh, Western Europe and um, Amsterdam, Holland. Went there to spread the Gospel in Amsterdam. And Western Europe is the most spiritually dead place you'll ever want to see, especially Amsterdam, Holland. I mean, just day after day after day after day. You tell people about Jesus, whatever, I don't care. That was, that was the response. Just spiritual deadness. Until two days before we left. 
when we changed our approach, we had been going to the coffee shops and stores and just trying to start up conversations with adults. The last two days we were there, we went to the local college. In fact, we went to the local college bar where the college kids hung out. Same message, same messengers, totally different response. We found that the young people there were open to what we had to say and willing to search the Scriptures. So it's kind of reverse there than it is here. But they were open. Same message, same messengers, different response. We see the same sort of thing today, don't we? Luke's telling us this sort of thing in the context of salvation. But it also applies to this assembly that we're in right now. We can come to this assembly two ways. We can come to this assembly in the spirit of the Thessalonians, or we can come to this assembly in the spirit of the Bereans. We can come to this gathering with the spirit of doubting, and uh, I'll believe maybe as long as, as you prove it to me, the spirit of rejection, or we can come with the spirit of recognizing our deep spiritual need and having a thirst. A thirst to receive the truth of God that will then make us diligently search the Scriptures to validate the Word of God. Let me encourage you to pray for that heart. Because you can't give yourself that heart. You can make yourself come to church. You can make yourself sit here and listen. You can make yourself open the Bible. You can't give yourself the heart of the Bereans. That is a work of the Spirit. So let me encourage you to pray for that heart. And if you think you have that heart, let me encourage you to pray for more of that heart. Because there's no limit to the childlike faith that we need. There's no limit to what God can impart to us when we come to the gathering of His people with that sort of attitude. Let me encourage you to pray for that heart.